0: Do you hear that? It's eerily quiet, right? Where's the cars? Where's the airplanes? And more importantly, why in the hell is my phone not working? As you walk outside, you notice that most of your neighbors are outside, curious as well. One thing's for sure, shit has really hit the fan. You don't know it yet, but an electromagnetic pulse attack has just occurred over the United States and the entire eastern seaboard has been plunged into darkness. Welcome to the 50th episode of Destination Disaster, I am your host, Devin Carney. you that nearly two years ago that I'd be 50 episodes into a podcast, I'd have told you that you must have been smoking crack. I'm extremely grateful for the followers that have stuck around since the beginning and for all of the evolutions that this podcast has transitioned through. For this episode, I wanted to do a theoretical scenario as well as provide some fact-based content to help cement just how huge of an EMP attack against the United States could be. Many of us don't realize how much we rely on modern technology, and more importantly, Those who rely on it to survive. If we were to experience an attack of such a magnitude, we're not looking at days or weeks in the dark, we're looking at months or longer. So, I welcome you to sit back, grab some snacks, and listen to this scenario. As a trigger warning, there are instances of violence, loud noises, and explosions. If you are unable to listen to this portion, please feel free to skip the scenario and listen to the factual portion that starts following this. You're just leaving the gym, walking down the crowded sidewalk, when all of a sudden, your music stops, cars come to a screeching halt, and some people even drop dead to the pavement. Thinking this may be some biological terrorist attack, you run for cover in the nearby coffee shop. Once inside, you notice people tapping their phones, baristas banging their espresso machines, and the drive-thru associate waving the car to keep moving. Except for you, many think this is just a coincidence, but it's not and you know exactly what it is. As you head for the door. You check behind you once more to take in the scene and magnitude of what's occurring. Outside the scenes are similar. Many are looking around in disbelief as their modern lives have just come to a sudden and drastic halt, and others attend to those who unfortunately have relied on modern medical devices to sustain their lives. 1-8 to hours following the blackout At the local government level, city services are scrambling to get a handle on the current situation. Within the emergency management office, the person in charge is directing teams to begin setting up the city map. And organizing teams to get into the public on foot and begin taking notes of the situation. Both the city manager and mayor are in the Emergency Operations Center watching the chaos unfold. At the state level, more experienced personnel already have an idea of what is occurring and are setting up their emergency gear that is stored for this event. Federally, Intelligence officials have already briefed the FEMA director and have begun starting their backup systems to start the response phase of this catastrophic event. FEMA is in the process of relocating their operations west of the Mississippi River, where communities remain relatively unaffected. The president is moved to Air Force One, where he can remain airborne indefinitely and communicate with ground assets. Immediately following this event, the president issues a federal disaster declaration, with Congress approving and tacking on 10 United States Code 12301 a or the full mobilization of military reserve component service members. This code states, if a war or national emergency is declared by Congress, all reserve component units are eligible for involuntary call-up. They can be kept on active duty for the duration of a declared war or emergency, plus six months. Emergency notices are automatically transmitted over the emergency alert broadcast system, as some radios are still transmitting, and amongst the ham radio operators those who receive the notice immediately report to their assigned duty locations and begin preparing for the arduous journey into the disaster zone. Back in the local and state governments, many have already activated their National Guard units, with many actively patrolling heavily populated areas to prevent looting and chaos from erupting further. Curfews are enacted within most cities, many requiring citizens that don't work in critical roles to be inside their residences by dusk. If they are outside after that time, Police units have the authority to detain on-site and ticket those for breaking the curfew up to $5,000. In space, NASA has begun running diagnostics on satellites currently in orbit and checking in with the crew aboard the International Space Station. When the launch was first identified, NASA alerted the crew to don their spacesuits and get into the emergency escape pod in the event the crew would need to travel back down to the surface. Hospitals that are in the dark are scrambling to enact emergency operations plans and start providing supportive care for those patients who are on ventilators. Many of these hospitals still have surge wings from COVID and are opening those for patients who are sure to show up from minor accidents and other ailments that will arise. Police are stationed at entry points to make sure that people don't try and steal prescription drugs that could be resold on the street. The federal government has set up contingency operations at the Cheyenne Mountain Complex. Much of the president's cabinet has survived, with only the Secretary of the Interior passing away due to their LVAD device failing. The Secretary of Defense is coordinating with assets overseas to get active duty personnel back home to aid in the recovery effort. Reserve and National Guard soldiers are actively clearing roads, evacuating citizens from high rise residential structures, and providing emergency services such as EMS, firefighting, and law enforcement capabilities, allowing community first response agencies to focus on more pertinent activities. 12 to 24 hours post blackout. After arriving at home and checking on your dogs, you rush to pack perishable goods into the deep freezer that you have in your garage. Doing this will add valuable time to meats and other items that require constant refrigeration. You also manage to fill the bathtub and all available jugs with tap water. It's likely during this period that water pumping stations will go offline unless their systems are hardened against electromagnetic pulse attacks. After looking through your cabinets, you notice that your cabinets are a bit light on dry goods. So you decide to venture out once again to the corner store to get some canned goods before the shelves run completely empty. If you ever run into a situation where food becomes a necessity, be sure you have the recommended 14 days of food on hand to ensure that you are able to sustain yourself. Now this doesn't mean that I'm telling you to run out and spend thousands on those dehydrated meals that are advertised, but every time you go grocery shopping, pick up an extra couple of cans of soup or chicken stock. That way if you ever need it, it's there and it adds peace of mind. Now back to the story. As you enter the store, as predicted, it's absolute chaos. People are in literal fistfights over bags of apples, and other fresh produce, fresh meat, and milk. You head straight for the dry grocery aisle, as this is where most of the shelf stable food and ingredients are located. The shelves aren't empty, but you suspect that you won't be restocking the shelves at your home anytime soon. Grabbing a couple of cans of whatever you can find down those aisles, you quietly exit the store and rush back home to hide the valuables you've just found. Another quick fact. An average grocery store holds approximately three days of inventory. Now, there are several different factors that impact the availability of food on the shelves. One of the biggest factors is the distance this food must travel. The term food miles refers to the distance food travels from the location where it is grown to the location where it is consumed, or in other words, the distance food travels from farm to plate. Recent studies have shown that this distance has been steadily increasing over the last 50 years. Studies estimate that processed food in the United States travels over 1,300 miles, and fresh produce travels over 1,500 miles before being consumed. Now, in a disaster scenario such as this, it could be very possible that grocery distribution centers could already be low on inventory and would never see a delivery until conditions improve. 48 to 72 hours post-blackout. Desperation is beginning to set in. With store shelves now empty and water not flowing anymore, there is a mass exodus traveling west. The federal government has broken the affected area into four different zones by priority. Zone 1 is Washington, D.C., down to the border of Virginia and North Carolina, covering to the border of Pennsylvania. Zone 2 is the Northeast and portions of Canada that have been affected. Zone 3 is North Carolina to Florida. And finally, Zone 4 is any area that is deemed to be a non-priority and will be the last to receive federal support. Reserve and National Guard troops are beginning to land at Andrews Air Force Base and any unaffected runways within Zone 1. Resources such as food, water, generators, and medical supplies are also shipped. Surprisingly, heavy vehicles such as tanks, HEMTT or heavy expanded mobility tactical trucks, and light mobility tactical vehicles have been unaffected and are able to help transport, tow, and provide mass transportation for troops into recovery zones. The world at this point is also in turmoil following the attack on the United States, with many countries posturing for war. The United States has gone into DEFCON 1 however, has not retaliated with a similar strike of their own. Instead, the Department of Defense has ordered all bases around the world into a defensive posture and to prepare for an imminent attack. Air forces are ordered to get their tankers, fighters, and AWACS aircraft in the sky to remain mobile and to evade any subsequent launches. Back home, missile silo operators are ordered to posture their weapons for imminent launch should a subsequent launch be detected. Due to the attack, NASA has identified that communications, weather, defense, and GPS satellites had been damaged following the EMP detonation. The satellites affected were ones that were in orbit over the United States at the time. Additionally, crews aboard the International Space Station had been ordered to return to the surface after it was discovered that some of the flight guidance systems were severely damaged, forcing mission control to take extreme measures to keep the International Space Station in a stable orbit. Back down on the surface, in the city, police forces are becoming overwhelmed as many people are becoming desperate to find the dwindling food resources within the community. Some criminal groups have begun roaming the streets at night, breaking into businesses and stealing whatever isn't expensive paperweight. Teams of police have had to concentrate their patrols to curb crime, while having to forego patrols in other areas, leaving many additional people at risk of experiencing violent crime. One week post-blackout. One weekend, and many people have run out of food and water, prompting violent clashes against the more fortunate and less fortunate in the streets. Society as we know it has collapsed in this portion of the United States as most politicians and police have abandoned their positions in order to evacuate and keep their families safe. What was home to nearly 180 million people, death, mass migration, and fear of the unknown has left about 100 million people remaining in the dark. There has been some progress made in the effort to restore power, with utility companies being able to repair some of the less damaged power generation substations and are now able to generate power to small portions of Zone 1 primarily at the White House and in downtown DC proper. Some hospitals within this zone have started to reopen, providing only emergent care to those who need it. National Guard and reserve troops operate these hospitals for the most part, as many of the civilians have left, never to return. Back to reality here for a quick minute. There has actually been extensive research conducted on the topic of societal collapse. What we see as normal everyday existence is actually a very fragile domino piece that if knocked over, could start a chain reaction of events that would lead to the collapse of society as we know it. Food, water, medical supplies, and communication are all things that we take for granted as a developed nation. People living post-collapse may expect to be sicker and more pain, hungrier, thirstier, and more afraid. Being constantly displaced, a feature of the post-collapse world, implies less safety and security. Most will have to find new ways to stay fed and hydrated, whether that means migrating, scavenging, hunting and gathering, bartering. To replace those trading partnerships that have been lost, developing new crafts, or cultivating one's food. These practices all entail greater pain and suffering relative to how most people currently acquire food and water. One month post-blackout. In zones that have yet to receive much federal assistance, life there is just complete hardship. Many have resulted to setting up community farms, watering holes, and small little medical gathering areas. Zone 1 is about 25% restored with reserve forces facing small-scale skirmishes by groups of individuals that have claimed territory following the evacuations. After successful attempts, forces have retaken the majority of contested areas and are able to protect utility crews as they work to restore power, water, and communications lines. Those who lived in the area before slowly begin trickling back in. However, normal life does not return. Instead, it is run by the military strict rules, curfews, and rationing in place. Due to residents moving back into these zones, they are placed under the command of a military government that oversees the management and resource utilization of each zone. Neighborhoods such as the Wharf, Georgetown, and the National Mall have had power, water, and communications restored. Even though these utilities have been restored, disease still runs rampant. Even minor injuries, such as cuts, can now be life-threatening if medical attention isn't sought out fast enough. Teams of medical personnel operate field medical centers and have personnel that will travel to neighborhoods to check on these injured and create treatment plans. Luckily, several allies have also contributed their personnel and supplies to aid in the recovery of the affected portion of the United States. South Korean search and rescue teams have been on the ground since day five assisting with locating those trapped in high-rise structures and safely evacuating them via a multitude of different ways. The United Kingdom has provided the affected region's hospitals with emergency solar generators making it able to at least operate emergency care facilities and conduct emergency surgeries if necessary. Much of our NATO allies have responded in kind, providing food, water, and medical aid, and transporting tens of thousands of crews trained in utilities and public infrastructure. Within weeks, personnel are able to get much of the I-95 corridor back online, restoring travel for military and volunteer personnel. Recovery teams roam main roads and collect stalled vehicles and recycle vital elements. Additional residents begin to return home to begin cleanup on their own. In communities where residents have returned, some small markets are beginning to reopen and are receiving small shipments of food. Solar panels now dot the tops of buildings, providing most of the power generation for residents. What was expected to last well over a year, the immense deployment of aid has helped speed recovery and allow many to return home and face the challenge of rebuilding their lives and return to a functioning society much faster six months post-blackout. As life begins to return to normal, foreign aid begins to return home, with smaller contingent forces remaining in areas that need a bit more assistance and areas that United States forces will be delayed in reaching. Approximately 90% of the eastern United States has recovered from the blackout, with many major services operating and about 80% of people returning. Deaths as a result of this attack totaled over 5 million due to underlying health conditions, car accidents, aircraft accidents, and violent altercations. Injuries at the time of the report are still being conducted, but are estimated to be well over $10 million, include anything from a minor cut to major head trauma. One thing is for sure, and that is the United States was severely underprepared for an attack of this magnitude. It is discovered that the launch originated from a Chinese-linked terrorist organization that was paid by the Communist Party to conduct the attack. Littered with the necessary hardware, the terrorist organization launched the small nuclear payload just above the Kármán line and detonated the warhead, which led to the blackout over much of the eastern United States. While a full-on war did not break out over this attack, the United States and China did engage in small naval and air skirmishes that resulted in two Chinese ships being sunk and 30 aircraft downed. Quickly, both nations realized that no one would win an ensuing war and decided to sign a ceasefire. Tensions remained high amongst nations and militaries throughout the First Island chain. The Risk The risk of the United States experiencing an attack similar to the one we just ran through in this scenario is something on the more fictional side in my opinion, as a lot of early warning systems would have to fail simultaneously for this to occur. The United States Space Force operates several different early warning systems to include ground and space-based satellite warning systems. The chances of these failing simultaneously are very unlikely, and luckily, we do have allies that would be able to share early warning data with us if that were to happen. If an attack such as the one we just discussed were to occur, it would prompt an immediate retaliatory response, resulting in nuclear exchanges between two world superpowers and a wider-reaching war that would span the globe. In terms of readiness, I don't think there's any amount of preparation that could prepare the citizens of the country. While the United States has a national stockpile of core items such as food, water, and medications, there isn't a stockpile of electrical components that utility companies can pull from in the event an attack of this magnitude occurs. Our electrical infrastructure is one of the most fragile pieces of critical infrastructure that is operated and requires even more sensitive parts that aren't readily available to replace. Generators that operate at substations typically take between one and three years to construct depending on the available components and number needed. For reference, there are 55,000 substations throughout the United States And each of those substations would need generators replaced, along with over 160,000 miles of transmission wires that would need replaced as well. This simply wouldn't be an overnight fix and would require specialized skill sets that could be largely reduced. This would be the most challenging disaster faced by the United States and could truly test the mettle of an average American citizen. Our way of life would be completely destroyed, forcing us to revert to a life that resembles pre-industrial America. To think of what that would look like, An average American citizen's lifespan today is 77 years old. Pre-industrialization, it was 35 years old. Unhygienic conditions, rampant disease, and increased infant mortality rates would jump significantly, rendering our population one of an ancient society and forcing many into unsuitable conditions. This is why you should always be prepared. And while you can't be 100% ready for an event of this magnitude, you can still stockpile necessary resources over time. Food, water, and medications would be your immediate priority. The average amount of food you want to have on hand to last any disaster is two weeks. However, for this event, I'd recommend you bump that up to the very minimum of one month. For water, this may be harder to accomplish as pumping stations will go offline, but installing rain barrels could solve this challenge. However, always be sure to boil any water that comes from an unknown source. The Centers for Disease Control recommends that you bring any potentially untreated water to a rolling boil for at least one minute. Medication may be a similar challenge to stockpile. However, I would recommend that you speak with your medical doctor regarding carrying additional quantities of prescription medications. If they are necessary for you to live, most medical providers will offer to increase your prescription amount. For any medication, please be sure to store it in the required conditions to ensure longevity and maximum effectiveness. If you are planning on carrying any additional quantities of over-the-counter medications, please make sure that you are rotating it based on expiration date, and if it is expired, please discard of it as you don't know if this medication will remain safe or effective. I wanna thank all of you for listening in this season. As you can tell, I've become quite busy with my new job that has in turn taken some of my time away. Fret not, as the show is not going anywhere and I remain committed to providing all of you with the best content possible. For the upcoming season, I am going to take a bit of a break to write and pre-record episodes and have them lined up for release on their appropriate date. As always, be sure to leave a like on the episode, follow the show on all of our social media pages and be on the lookout for the revamped Patreon to launch sometime here in the next month. I'm not here to get rich, so following each season, a portion of the money contributed to the Patreon will be donated to a charity of your choice. Until next season, this has been Destination Disaster.